In the deep dark, the Aslan are moving, but there is a darker power. There is something behind the claw. Welcome to episode 30 of the Behind the Claw podcast, a show for fans of the classic traveller RPG. I'm Felbrick Napoleon Herriot, and let's start by taking a look in the email vault. Ah, DM Mike from the Save or Die podcast has been in touch to ask a very important question. As a fan of the Little Black Books that's recently been playing a mongoose traveller game where his PC has, wait for it, 15 whole skills, he asks, am I just a crotchety old grognard, or does this just seem like needless complication? Well, the answer, my friend, is yes. Yes, it is. I recommend you just cross ten of those skills off, and you'll feel much better about it. And afterwards, you know, less stress. Gerald has written in with a suggestion for a possible origin of the misjump concept used in Traveller. Lost in Space, he says, the 1965 series that started off as a Saturday sci-fi show and ended up, in my opinion, as a terribly unfunny joke. Yes, I didn't like it. Ah, and I've got another one here. Sean sent me an email in which he offers proofs that the series Firefly was based on the director's Traveller campaign. These proofs include quotes from the show where spacefarers are referred to as travellers, a leaked script that spelt traveller with two L's, and even that Regina and Bellerophon appear in the series and in Traveller. Seems pretty conclusive. Or at least so it seems to me. I haven't seen this series, however, so maybe one day I'll see it and be able to confirm that. Sean also pointed me at Spinwood Traveller, a Kickstarter from a couple of years ago that raised money to produce a pilot episode of a series. Man, I don't know how I missed that. But it's still getting updates, but unfortunately, as I didn't subscribe to this, I can't see them. Does anyone out there know if anything is happening with this Kickstarter? Anyway, thanks for your emails, folks. I really do appreciate them. Keep them coming. I have no idea. So, computer, what can you tell me about this place? This is the My Galaxy segment, where I tell you about a planet for my Ferena subsector. A map and planetary UPPs are available on the podcast website at behindtheclaw.blogspot.co.uk. Zanza is a backward world at the edge of the subsector and on the edge of civilization. In fact, it's considered a barbaric world. There is no permanent spaceport on the planet itself but one of its moons has been planted by the scout service with a transponder, and the usual emergency supplies are there for any lost travellers. The planet itself is unpleasant to visitors. The air is generally unbreathable, the gravity somewhat heavy, the surface land is boggy, and the people are considered ugly by the usual imperial measures. There are no trade goods to be taken off-world, as the technology level on the planet makes what goods they do produce of low quality. They are capable of great craftsmanship, but only in such low numbers of items that off-world trade of them is uneconomic. They live in a pre-electricity, pre-industrial society that embraces both slavery and blood sacrifice, and it's these factors that visitors should be aware of before planning a trip to the surface, as it can be dangerous to the unwary. 
The planet shares a single religion across all of its continents, and a single government structure. The religion is what organises their society. It is the central pillar by which their laws are established and the various castes live their lives. Although the religion in theory rules over everything, this has been supplanted to some extent by a worldwide civil service that handles the day-to-day running of affairs. This service, however, follows the long-established religious rules, and these are not up for debate, and cause nothing but minor frictions between the civil operatives and the religious hierarchy. One objectionable facet of their society is the religion's dictate that on every feasting day human sacrifices have to be made in every major city. The victims are traditionally the second and third sons of the household before they reach puberty. It is considered an honour for a son to be thus killed, but observers have noticed that the individual families are not always happy when one of their own is selected by the lot. The people of Zanza have adapted to the exotic atmosphere and move about freely without breathing apparatus or apparent problem, but visitors are advised to wear masks. Its atmosphere has a lower-than-standard oxygen content, and the local microbiotics easily overwhelm the lungs of those not born on the planet. They are generally a short people due to the higher gravity, and have an appreciable increase in strength in proportion to this. Their bodies have also adapted to the non-standard atmosphere, giving them somewhat barrel chests which encompass larger-than-normal lungs. Their faces, too, have become somewhat distorted by adaption to local conditions. Protruding cheekbones and matching bulge between their eyes contain enlarged sinuses that have evolved to deal with the biological contaminants in the air. Although their local technology has not evolved beyond gunpowder weapons and handheld blades, it has developed and adapted into a stable, if barbaric, society. They are aware that there is a wider universe and visitors from off-world, if not actually regular, are not unknown nor unwelcome. Unless, of course, they choose to associate with the lower castes, in which case they might find themselves asked to leave. No, no, no way. The way I heard it is that he was shipping arms, guns, you know, taking them straight in, under the navvy's nose. It's time for another story seed. In a beachfront town, some strange things have been washing up on the beach, including bits of what appear to be a starship and its cargo. The pieces discovered by the public include a number of cargo pods and a piece of a wingtip. The cargo pods that have been found include high-value industrial powders. The local council, who normally only deal with rubbish collection and tourist issues, don't have the equipment or service personnel to investigate this flotsam and that's where the PCs come into the picture. The council want this stuff to stop washing up on their beach. It's interfering with the nice, peaceful tourist trade. Industrial waste on a beachfront is most unwelcome. The PCs are requested to make sure nothing else washes ashore, and to do it unobtrusively. The source of the ship fragment and its cargo pods is a small crashed starship. Ten or so years ago, the ship's engines failed, and it crashed into the sea. The ship was making an illegal cargo run from orbit with high-value and untaxed industrial materials which were being taken to a local crime boss. Of course, nothing of this was reported as the whole process was illegal. Over the intervening years, tides have carried the ship inshore, where it has started breaking up in the reef about a mile offshore. 
The PCs might find the ship in any number of ways. Perhaps a cargo pod rises to the surface under their very nose, or they dive looking for it. Either way, they should find the ship. The ship is, of course, worth a lot of money. Its cargo, too, is worth a lot of money. Everyone who realises that is going to want their share. The counsellors who employed the PCs will want some. Anyone who hires equipment to the PCs will want some. The crime boss, he'll want it all. The PCs are likely to be greedy and not want to share. It could be fun for the referee here to apply pressure from multiple sources and squeeze the PCs in the middle. The crime boss wants it all, of course. The Starship's insurance company demand it all too. The local head counsellor threatens them with prison if he doesn't get it all, and so on. And then add into the mix a rival recovery company might be turning up and start fishing around for the wreck at just the wrong time. In the end, you can create a tense, multifaceted situation where the PCs might literally and figuratively have sharks circling around them. No, sir, you may not dock here. What the hell? I just made three jumps to get here. Without Permit 7C, you may not dock. Now move out to the holding line at 6,000 kilometres. This is the rules talk section, where I look at some aspect of the classic traveller rules or canon. Today I thought I'd look at one of the weapons in the traveller universe, the autocannon. I've done a bit of research and it seems that the autocannon really started coming into its own and into prominence back in the late 70s and early 80s here on Earth, which ties up nicely with the release of Book 4 Mercenary. As with most weapon descriptions in Traveller, each weapon actually describes a general category of weapon, and that's no different here. The autocannon is a rapid, fully automatic gun capable of firing cannon shells, including variants of solid slugs, penetrators, and explosive-filled shells. The rules describe the rounds as weighing up to 100 grams, and ranging in diameter from 25mm up to 60mm in calibre. It can be loaded with two types of shell easily, and the operator can switch between the ammo types at will. It can operate at semi or fully auto, and fires bursts of 10 shells. And it requires an external power source and cannot be man-carried, requiring a vehicle mount or solid platform. They can be mounted on gunships at Tech Level 7, and the rules state that at Tech Level 8, laser tanks carry them to strip the ablative armour off of enemy vehicles. I found that kind of interesting, because in our own modern world they can be used in a similar way to strip the ERA, that's Explosive Reactive Armour, from main battle tanks, thereby allowing the tank's main gun to penetrate the armour. A very similar circumstance. The rules suggest that hitting man-sized targets is going to be easy, only requiring 6 plus on 2 dice, and then going to 6 to 8 dice damage, or twice that if firing a burst. All in all, it's a prime example of a terrifying death-dealing weapon that any sensible PC would want to avoid at all costs. However, sitting behind one, that might well make the PCs feel pretty safe, even from the megafauna I'd likely send their way. Did you hear that? What the hell do you think it is? Is it dangerous? This is the Creature Catalogue, where I tell you about a creature from somewhere in the Imperium. The Trapper is a predator that awaits its prey in an underground hide and emerges at high speed to surprise and capture the prey animal. 
It weighs around 80 pounds and can take a prey animal weight up to twice its own, including unwary humans if they get too close. The trapper has a rigid exoskeleton that has a doppled colouring in various shades of yellow and tan. It stands out brightly in its natural habitat when above ground. They do not often leave their lairs and so the coloration is not about camouflage, but more about recognition between members of the same species. These rare emergencies appear to be only for breeding and the laying of eggs. They all share a single sex, but still couple for the purposes of breeding. After such a coupling, both parties will lay eggs in shallow scrapes up to a mile or so from their own hide. They are insectoid in appearance, and this large animal is hexapedal and has basically just a torso and legs. It does not have a separate head. Each pair of legs has specialised feet. The rear claws are wide and spade-like. These make the trapper a good digger, and they also give it a good base for when it launches into an attack. The forelegs have long hook-shaped claws. It drives these into the flesh of the prey, anchoring itself in a way that the prey cannot escape. The central pair of legs end in claws that are sharp-edged. These are used to quickly slash and eviscerate the prey once it's hooked. The attack of the trapper is preceded by multiple bursts of a thick, inky cloud of liquid from around the perimeter of its hide. The spray is caused by the trapper squeezing pods of the inky fluid that it extruded previously and laid for the purpose. The spray does two things. It effectively blinds the prey and causes surprise, the combination of which often scares the prey rigid. Normal prey animals have faceted eyes and this sticky fluid adheres to the surface of the eyes, blinding but not otherwise hurting the prey animal. However, this fluid is acidic and causes extreme pain and burn damage to humans. When visiting areas inhabited by the trapper, keep your eyes open for the giveaway signs of a trapper hide. Often the area is littered with the bones of prey animals. Also, the trapper will periodically clean out its hide by flinging the bedding material from the hide. And this leads to a fan-shaped swathe of well-rotted detritus that can indicate the hide's location. Avoid coming close to the hide, as the trapper can leap considerable distances both horizontally and vertically. They're best eradicated by using explosive grenades, which should be tossed into the hide without putting yourself into danger. Have you got that feed ready? Yep, feeding it through now. Got it, thanks. That net feed's got a weird name. What is it? Whale song. The captain likes whale song? This is On The Nets, where I tell you about some goodie that I found on the interwebby tubes. Today, I'm just going to point you to a blog. The URL is talestoastound.wordpress.com. If you go to that link, you'll find there's a traveller out-of-the-box menu item. Click on that, and it'll take you to a series of articles examining the basic three books, the little black books, of the original traveller. I found it a fascinating read, and I recommend you go take a look. So I'm here. Why don't you tell me why you're called? The spacer in the corner booth. Don't stare at him. I see him. Who is he? The guy on the news vids. Which news vids? The thousands of channels. Crookwatch. Ah, I see.
This is the People of Interest segment, where I tell you about someone from the Imperium that has a bit of a reputation. The press have called him The Sneak since the first he came into renown, and no other name is known for him. He's first and foremost a thief, but a cheeky thief, and he doesn't appear to be stealing for his own gain. A few years ago, Harry Apolenka, a rich industrialist, reported that his priceless painting by Andrade had been stolen. The police investigation found no evidence of a break-in, and so the insurance payout was contested by his insurer, and that itself turned into a nasty story. But that was not the end of the matter. A year later, a picture turned up of a Holiday Inn couple standing on a beach holding the missing painting and smiling at the camera. The police located and interviewed the couple and discovered that they had met a stranger who had asked them to hold the painting while he took a picture. They knew nothing else. The police took the details of the stranger and this didn't lead their investigation anywhere and no names were forthcoming. An ancient statuette was meantime stolen from a museum a few miles away from the mansion of Mr. Apalenka. When the building opened for business, one of the first members of the public to enter discovered the empty plinth. Once again, the investigation found no evidence of a break-in. Another couple on another beach were soon photographed holding the artefact. The description the police took did not match the original description of the stranger that they interacted with. It was at this point that the press started labelling the person responsible as the sneak, because he seemed able to sneak into any location and take what he wanted. A third theft, this time jewellery from a wall safe in a guarded mansion. The same beach photo track was used by the thief to thumb his nose at the authorities. Around this time, for various reasons of their own, pranksters started taking fake valuables to various beaches and creating copycat photos. This led authorities to pass a subsequently struck down law forbidding beachside photos with valuables. The police spent a lot of effort investigating various avenues that could be used for the sale of these items, both on and off world, an act that included searching people's private luggage as they tried to leave the planet, even when travelling on their own yachts. This caused a massive outcry, and again was discontinued shortly thereafter. More thefts. Jewellery, another painting, more photos followed. And then, well over 24 months after the original, a single photo appeared anonymously, showing all of the stolen items arrayed in what looked like a private viewing gallery. This, of course, meant that the thief was not stealing for profit, but for a personal collection. Following subsequent thefts and photos, the police followed up each case in a perfunctory way, but got no closer to finding the sneak. Instead, they started advising concerned individuals to increase the security around their valuables. The press, too, began to lose interest, and many have speculated that the press's lack of interest is what caused the sneak to stop stealing. The thefts simply slowed and then stopped. In total, 24 items were stolen and attributed to the sneak, with an estimated value of well over 50 megacredits, and none of them have ever been found. What the? My God, sir, they've launched a missile. It's, it's tracking. Have they now? Don't fret, though. I've got something special to handle that. 
Lancelot, activate my special defensive feature. And today we have a bit of flash fiction, sent in by repeat contributor Gerald. This is called Alien Contact. Rylanor Highport Customs Agent, first degree, Wawasi Tispatasiab's shallow hood dripped water onto the transparent lid of the terranium. Are there any species of mini-fauna present in the soil that could infest or otherwise threaten the station should they gain egress? The WAP official asked, tapping on the screen of its tablet computer. Kuda Neroda waved his hand away from his torso. The Darian body language for dismissal didn't seem to register with the alien. Neither did his distress. As an ecologist, Dr. Neroda didn't mind getting his hands dirty. However, this was a starship. This exotic slick path from the airlock into the cargo area enhanced the chances of a fall. He pulled his hand through his hair and a deep breath into his lungs. No, Agent Tispata Siab, Kuda said clearly. This device contains three species of plant, one species of fungus, and their associated microbes. None of these species could survive for a week in the general environment of a space station. I believe they pose no threat to the high port unless someone ingests them. He felt a wisp of pride in remembering the person's six-syllable name. The customs agent continued to drip onto its tablet and the DCS Fastrider's deck. The alien stood just a few cents taller than a metre and looked like a bipedal salamander whose glistening greenish-blue skin was occasionally spotted in yellow. The creature's white hood and jerkin were waterlocked. It looked up from the display it had been gesturing on and bobbed its head twice. Are there any other flora or fauna that need to be catalogued during your vessel's stay at Relana Highport? Agent Tispata Siab asked for the fourth time. Kuda's patience finally sublimed and left him alone with his frustration. The captain was busy negotiating with the high port's purser for a replacement jump capacitor. Engineers Garcia and Lalo Caner were beginning to strip down the fuel purifier, and the ship's doctor, Uriek, was clearing filters in the life support system. That left the idle ecologist or the cargo robot to deal with customs, and Kuda possessed the advantages of full sentience and a voice. It had been a long interview. During the alien's initial query, Kuda divulged the crew list and logs on the Fastrider's ports of call since leaving the home world. He also revealed their reason for visiting Relanor, to seek rare Darian flora that had been shipped off-world over 800 years ago. Customs agent First Degree Wawasi Tispatasiab had expressed an interest in ecology and casually asked how their mission progressed. Only after this had Kuda mentioned the presence of specimens picked up on the Garda Villis en route. The terraniums stoked the small being's interest. Tispata Siab immediately requested to see the plants and began reiterating its question. To its credit, it varied the way it asked each time, but it became evident that it wanted to give Kuda plenty of opportunity to either remember further details or get caught out in a falsehood. In a bout of temper, Kuda said the first thing that occurred to him. I am unaware of and fairly certain that any other forms of life on this ship were carried here by your good person, Agent Tispata Siab, Kuda stated flatly. The alien blinked and closed its jaw. The small sound of its wet lips clapping together in a pop surprised him. Panic rose through Kuda's chest and clenched his throat closed. 
had he just insulted the BWAP official? The little alien, who could refuse them access to the planet below, suddenly seemed as menacing as it was damp. You're right, of course, Tispata Siap croaked. I enjoy your sense of humour, Dr. Kuda Neroda. I do appear to be the only living entity unaccounted for on your ship. It tapped on the screen of its tablet again, then looked back up to the man. Clearance to dock at Rolano Highport is granted, and should not exceed 140 standard hours beginning at 0500 station time. If you need an extension, please contact Port Authority. The Boap offered him a key. Kuda grinned and took it. Thank you, Agent Tispata Siab. The glittering Sophont began walking back towards the airlock with a distinct waddle. Thank you for your help, the alien said, and I hope you are successful in gaining your specimens. I would enjoy seeing them before you leave. I'll make those arrangements, Kuda said. May I ask you a personal question? The Boap nodded a single time, its hand on the airlock's controls. May I address you informally when contacting you about the results of our mission? Please call me Wawasi. It cycled the airlock and left the ship. Kuda stood in the lock, feeling the warm air of the station pass over him. The cacophony of crowds and hectic noises on an Imperial naval base rode the breeze into the fast rider's hull. He idly wondered what gender Wawasi could possibly be. To have to do a little research on the Bwap species. And there ends our little story. Thanks for sending that in, Gerald. Thanks for the trade, Tuchel. It was a pleasure doing business with you. So long, sucker. And so we've reached the end game. Once more, and as usual, if you have any thoughts, suggestions, questions, segment items, or stories, send them in to BehindTheClaw at Outlook.com. This podcast is released on an attribution, non-commercial, no-derivatives license. Its home on the web is at behindtheclaw.blogspot.co.uk. Music by Kevin MacLeod of Incompetech.com. I'm your host, Felbrick Napoleon Herriot. Thanks for listening. Prepare for jump. <laughs>